Are you overcoming the world? Is it your faith that's winning? We all go through difficulties in life, and, and it's our faith that we have to hold on to. I told you last week that I was going to give you guys an update in a couple weeks. Uh, I did want to let you know that we, I'm we're holding on to faith, we're, we're trusting God, but I don't got an answer for you yet. Uh, we would like to give you, we, we met with my doctor and he said in a couple, we have uh, a few more appointments with other uh, specialists and then uh, we should be able to really nail everything down. And so on the last Sunday of this month, I'm going to give you uh, just the whole uh, of what's happening in, in just my physical condition. So hold on to that. Uh, forgive me, it's not going to be next week. It'll be the week after that. But I want us to think about what it means for us to overcome the world in our faith. It's true that when we understand what Jesus has done to, for us and that he has liberated us, and all of a sudden we realize what it means to be in his band and how incredible it is, I believe what that does in us is to create such an attitude of, of gratitude within us that we want to help others see the truth. When we have been plucked out of the darkness of our own sin and God has cleaned us off and he has placed us in the light, it tells us in, within our hearts, we have to well up and say, I want others to come out of the darkness and be in the light. When we have experienced the forgiveness of God, that we have been released from the prison of our sin and our bondage, there is something within us that is so grateful to God that we want others to understand that forgiveness as well. At least we should. See, this is what Paul was saying to the Philippians when he was encouraging them to make, in a sense, the vital sign of the gospel central to their life, to the central to their church, central to each individual, I believe he does that because we want to talk about and want to represent the one who has done such an incredible thing for us. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul's beginning. Some of you know his conversion. If you go to Acts chapter 9, we see that here's a man who was called Saul at that time. He went by Saul or Paul. Um, but when he was considered Saul in Jerusalem, he was considered the persecutor. Everybody hated him. Every believer fleed from him. And he wanted to destroy Christianity as it was developing. He didn't want the way to, be, to gather any steam whatsoever. And so as a result, he went out and persecuted, and he was even willing to approve the death of individuals. In fact, he had just come from, by the time we get to Acts chapter 9, he had just come from the approval of the stoning of a guy named Stephen in Jerusalem. And now he's on the road He's on the road to Damascus. He has papers and hands with permission from his higher-ups to go and apprehend and seize those people that are promoting Christ and following Christ. But little did Saul realize that that would be a day that he would have to come face-to-face -face with the higher-up, Jesus Christ. And so a piercing light comes to him and he stops Saul in his tracks and he says, why, Saul, are you persecuting me? 
And what we know in that passage is as a result of this dramatic confrontation by Christ, Saul gives his life to Christ. And once he is convinced that he is Lord, what's interesting is the very next day, this is what Acts 9.20 says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. In a matter of days, think about it, he went from persecutor to preacher in representing Christ. Why did he make such a transition? Because the one that overcame his sin... Jesus Christ created within him a desire to overcome the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And so that should be the case for each and every one of us as believers. As we continue on in our series of vital signs, we're going to talk about today the advancement of the gospel. Now, what's interesting is that God is actually going to use Saul, Paul, as a a visual illustration to the church of how the gospel was advanced in his life. But I will say that God used some tools in advancing the gospel through Paul's life that weren't exactly the kind of tools that we would wish upon anyone or want for ourselves because they were tools of hardship. And so this is the three tools that we're going to learn about today. And I promise you that every one of these tools are still active today. There's still things that we go through and there's still things that God wants to use in our life. He uses chains, he uses criticism, and he uses crisis. Isn't that a delightful list of tools? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, As we look at your word, I pray that you would open our eyes to our own life. I pray that you would rearrange the priority of our heart and our mind. I pray, Father, that that love, that first love that we had for you when we gave our life to Christ, that it would bubble up to the surface and that it would be at the forefront of our mind. It would be on our heart. And that we would want to live as a testimony because of the blood of Christ, because of your grace, may it be our testimony to represent you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work of encouraging us and motivating us this morning. And, Lord, where there's areas that we need to be convicted, convict us as well. In Christ's name, amen. Simple outline, chains, critics and crisis. Let's take a look at the chains. Look at verses 12 through 14. We're in chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 12 says this. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the Philippians, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, what we see here in this passage is that the Apostle Paul knows that there's fears and apprehensions on the part of the Philippians because they have heard that Paul was imprisoned. And it's logically, it's logical that humanly thinking, they're thinking, oh my goodness, the, 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 something's gone awry. The plan has been derailed. 
And, and what's going to happen in terms of our Paul and our leader and what he is doing and the, the way that he's going? This doesn't seem to fit the scenario that we had in our mind of what our leader should be going through. And so what Paul does is he says, no, no, Philippians, I want you to know this, that everything that's happened, all my chains, all my circumstances, all the negative stuff that's happened in my life, it's for the good. It's for the advancement of the gospel. Now, what's interesting is the word advancement is actually a military term. It's a military term used of the individual that precede, precedes the troops in going into a new territory. It was kind of the engineer that was calculating all the risks and the risk assessments. And so Paul is using that of himself saying, no, everything has happened in that I get to pioneer my way into Rome for the sake of the gospel. Now, Paul has wanted to go to Rome for some time. When he wrote the book of Romans, he had never been to Rome. In fact, he says in Romans 1.15, he says this, I am ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome. So why was Rome so important to Paul? Because Paul was thinking in terms of multiplication. He was thinking of the maximum effectiveness. Rome was the center of the empire. It was the world power at that time. There was no greater world power and there was no greater city than Rome. And Paul is thinking, if I can get to Rome, if I can share Christ, if I can share the gospel and see lives transform, then it will affect all facets of life. What's interesting in Rome, they were so advanced in so many areas. They were advanced in the arts. They were advanced in business. They were advanced in government and education, family and entertainment. And Paul's mindset, because the gospel was at the front of his mind, he says, whatever I do, I want to affect people that will affect others. And that will have a far-reaching effect into the world. Millions will be affected for the gospel. So I would imagine that Paul initially thought of walking into Rome like he walked into all the other cities in his missionary journeys. But God had chosen to allow him to go in chains. He had chosen to do that. Now, I could see some people looking at that and saying, look, God's failed. God has failed. Look at you, Paul. God has let you down. But I believe by what he says here, he is showing the opportunity God gave him. Look what he says in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is, a Christ, is for Christ. He wasn't there as a criminal. And everyone knew it. Yes, there were outside people that wanted to shut him down. But you can't shut down the gospel. So think about it. Paul would have been chained to somebody 24-7. Do you think Paul saw those chains as an opportunity or an obstacle? No, no. He saw it as an opportunity. He had a captive audience. At least four times a day, they would change cycles. And so there was four people every day that heard him singing, that heard him praying, and heard him presenting the gospel of Christ. And I believe there were other people because it says, and the rest have heard that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is having a blast 
because he knows that he's affecting government officials and those government officials will have a profound effect on those around them. Inevitably, there were those that came to faith in Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about your chains. Here's the question. What opportunity is God giving you due to your chains? What opportunity is God giving you due to your chains? There's a lady named Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was born at the age, or she's, yeah, she was born at the age of six. Uh, she was blind at the age of six. And she could have taken the, the chains of her blindness and just been discouraged her whole life. But J, uh, Fanny Crosby became one of the most prolific hymn writers. And we sing some of those hymns today. We sing Blessed Assurance that was written by Fanny Crosby. She did not allow her chains of darkness to, 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 to have her give up. How about pregnancy choices? Jill, I just love your testimony. I told your husband that he doesn't have to go by Jill's husband. Okay, he has a name. So it's Howard, right? Okay, got it. Okay. But you know what? I love pregnancy choices. I love what's going on there. And this is what I know. I know that there have been those clients that have come through that have been changed, changed by the ministry and what these ladies that have been chained, changed, they're not allowing their chains of the past to affect them because some of them are counselors to other women. How about a lady named Susanna Wesley? Susanna Wesley, this is in the 1800s. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. Now, I wonder if she would have felt like she was in chains at times. Now, 19 children, this is before television show. When the lights went out, there really wasn't that much else to do but procreate. So this is exactly what happened with, with Susanna Wesley. But Susanna, instead of seeing all of her children as just a bunch of rugrats and a burden and just give me time away from them, Susanna Wesley decided to love them, to discipline them, and instruct them in the way of the Lord and his word. From these kids came John and Charles Wesley, whose combined ministry had a profound impact on the British Isles for the gospel. I can go on and on and on about people in history, people even today, that have seen their circumstances and seen it as opportunities instead of an obstacle. So my question for you is this, how are you doing with that? See, for friends, whether your chains are physical, they're circumstantial, emotional, you need to realize that there are no accidents with God. And whatever you are going through, it is a platform. It is a way for you to have your story or your testimony, however you want to put it. It is yours to represent him for the gospel. And some of us need to stop lamenting over the pain and the problems that we have had and realize that these chains are there for the good and God wants to do something. Now, before we move on, let me point out that Paul 
points out one other thing. Not only did he have opportunity to share the gospel, but he was able to encourage brothers and sisters to be motivated to live out the gospel themselves. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What an awesome thing. Now, what I would encourage you to do is for you to take a look and see what others have done and be encouraged by that. Now, what's interesting in this verse, he uses the word speak. The word speak doesn't mean preach. It means everyday conversation. So in your everyday conversations around the water cooler, or your everyday conversation in a business meeting, or in a lunch meeting, or the people walking by your house in your neighborhood. Use these as opportunities to build relationships and share the love of God that's on your heart. Can I share a prayer of mine for you? My prayer is that you would not feel sorry for my cancer chains but rather that you would be motivated to share Christ. That you would be motivated to love other people. I am humbled by the many opportunities since my diagnosis to share Christ. And it's been a wonderful thing. And I, I suppose when you have a brush with your own mortality, you get a little bolder in life. Don't wait for a brush with your mortality for you to be bold. What an awesome thing it would be for Mission View to be known as a bold church who passionately shares their love for Jesus Christ without fear. That would be awesome. Here's the second thing he goes into. He goes into the critics. You would think that Paul wouldn't have critics, but he does have critics. This is what he says, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pro proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, I find it amazing that Paul had Christians that were opposing him, that Christians did not want him to succeed. But you know what I think God is doing here? I think God is giving us a picture into the ugly window of the church. Now, I want you to know the ugly window of the church is not created by God. That's all us, baby. It all comes from man in our humanity. But there is an ugly window of division that God is allowing us to peer into. Now, Paul says that some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. This gives us a hint as to what he was going through. The word envy shows jealousy. I think that they were jealous of Paul's um, uh, apostolic authority, his success, his immense giftedness that God had given him. So I think that that was part of the envy. The rivalry shows that there's a sense of competition. They wanted to discredit Paul so that they could be better themselves. It's that age old, I'm going to knock you down so I look a lot better. This is evil 
through and through, it's no good. It's not of God. But Paul says, yep, there's those people. But then he goes on and says, but there are those that are also preaching Christ out of goodwill. In other words, sincere motives. Paul identifies both of them. Then he goes on and says, those that have goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now here's what we see here. The unity that God desires and the mindset that God desires, that we are working together with fellow believers for the sake of the gospel. Those that were preaching Jesus out of love knew that Paul wanted other believers to support the cause of the gospel. That's what they knew. They knew that. In other words, Paul's aim was to glorify Christ by getting people to know Christ and thus proclaim Christ and exalt him. But these people that were the, the troublemakers, their aim was to promote themselves and get people to follow their way. But notice what Paul says in the end. He says this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I don't care if people are critical of me. I don't care. All I care about is Christ being proclaimed. And, and here's the silver lining in all this. Christ is being proclaimed. Some in good motives, some in bad, but at least Christ is proclaimed. Church, this is really practical for us, and you may not even know how it's practical. Here's my question. How should we be working together for the sake of the gospel? And when I say we, I'm not talking about just mission view. I'm talking about the body of Christ. How should we work together? In my 31 years of history of ministry in this area, what I've realized that there is a spirit of division within the body of Christ. And I want you to know I once was a part, my very first ministry, I was a part of a ministry that was like that. Our lead pastor, when I was a youth pastor, would say to us in the staff, there are no good disciple-making ministries in this area whatsoever. All bad. We have a, the greatest disciple-making ministry. Now, that should have alerted me, and the warning sign should have been going off. Ooh, 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 this is pride. There's a problem here. But I was looking, at, I was 22 out of college. I was looking at how many people were coming to the ministry. There seemed to be fruit all over the place. And I got to tell you, eventually I drank the Kool-Aid. I drank it. I thought we were all that. I believed it. I've been there. We wouldn't meet, I wouldn't meet with another youth pastor unless I was considered the one discipling them. Arrogant. I was a part of that. I did that. But God broke me. I had a guy I was discipling, and we were going through a book called Calvary Road. And I told him, I said, I'm, I think this would be good for your discipleship. He says, I'm really happy that we're doing this. He says, because I really think you need to be broken. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is for you. But God spoke to me, and that was the part of the turning point for me. I started praying for brokenness, and God started showing me things in my own life. 
In 95, I got away from that church and I realized two things. Number one, that there are some really good disciple-making ministries. But number two, there are other ministries that have the same exact mindset. Some of those embrace what I call degrees of separation. Does anybody know what degrees of separation are? Let me tell you what it is. First of all, the title goes contrary to John 17, Jesus' prayer that the church be one. Just note that. But here's how it happens practically. You have church A. Church A loves doctrine. They love doctrine. And they have their doctrines down. And they teach their doctrines to the body. They're not really good at getting into the community, but they have their doctrines down. They believe in eternal security. They believe in male leadership. They believe in, in some of the, the sign gifts have ceased. And so that's church A. But then you have church B that believes a little bit differently. Now, they believe in the core things. They believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in, in Jesus is the only way to, the, to heaven. And it's through, grace, through faith, through grace alone. And so you have that commonality. But because church A is, in, uh, is different than church B in terms of doctrinal distinctives, church A says, I can have nothing to do with church B. And they let their body know, don't do anything with church B. It's not a good church. First degree of separation. Then along comes church C. This is our ugly window, by the way. Paul had his ugly window. This is our ugly window. Church C comes in. Guess what? Church C agrees with church A doctrinally, perfectly in alignment, but they have a different mindset. They have a different mindset that they say, we want to unify on the gospel. And since church B unifies in the gospel, we're going to fellowship with them. We're going to work together for the sake of the gospel. And we want to reach our community for Christ. And guess what? Church A says, because church C is associating with church B and they are horrible we are no longer going to associate with church C. Boom! Second degree of separation. You think I'm kidding? You think this is a dr dramatic illustration? It is not. This mindset has been going on for the longest time in our community. And you can see the ridiculousness to this ugly window. But here's the good news. There's new leadership rising up within churches. And a lot of the younger leaders are saying, we want to get past this disunity. We need to unite on the gospel. And if we can unite on the core of the gospel, those are the, the gospels, the closed-handed issues. All the other stuff is, you know, whether you baptize someone three times forward or three times backwards doesn't matter to us. We're, we're going to just let those be open-hand issues. And I'm so encouraged that, I'm, that Mission View is a part of those churches that are saying, let's do things together. The only exception is that you don't have a young leader. Some time ago, I started gathering some of the pastors, lead pastors in this area, and I've asked them one question. I said, what is it that God wants for our city? Well, he wants people to know Christ. I said, 
If that's what he wants for our cities, if he wants us to make disciples of all the people within our city, how is he going to do it? Is it going to be through one individual church or through a bunch of churches that are gospel-minded that would come together? And so what we've done is we've set, come together, and the first thing I've encouraged them to do is let's pray for each other from the pulpit. You'll notice that every Sunday we pray for another church in, this, in our area. The reason we do it is we're not all that. We need each other. We need many expressions of the body of Christ to be able to proclaim the truth. And we need to work together with gospel-minded churches. And so we have to do that. So we'll start by praying so that we have a unity on the basis of prayer. But the second thing is that we start doing some things together where we can unite on the gospel. Some of you guys have asked, you said, well, Steve, how come we're not doing family film night all summer long. We did it the second Sunday in G or second Friday in June and in July and August last year and the year before. How come we're only taking the charge in June? It's because the body of Christ is doing it this year. You'll notice these shirts that we're promoting. We're encouraging you to get one. But it basically says, love your city. And on the back of it is the churches that are uniting for this summer at the F uh, Family Film Fridays and Main Street Festival. And so we had faith, uh, first friends with us on uh, Friday night. We had an incredible time with ours. And we're going to have New Point Church that's going to take lead on the July. And f uh, first friends going to join them. And then we're going to have the Summit Church do the one in August. And we'll unite together for Main Street Festival. And we're also going to do something in August called a church swap. I'm going to go over to the Summit Church and preach a message there. And Tom, Hag, Pastor Hag, Hogstead is going to come here and preach. We're going to do more to unite for the sake of the gospel. Why do we do it? We got to get rid of the ugly window, one. But Jesus' prayer is this in John 17. Take a look at this. Jesus' prayer is this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. My friends, there is a witness that the church has not had in a community because the church has not united on the gospel. Our vision is to see every man, woman, and child within our community be able to hear, see, and have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. That's our mission. That's our vision. Our mission is to make disciples so that there's intimacy and community and influence. We'll do that within the church. But out there, our vision is to see every man, woman, and child. We cannot do it alone. But all that comes out of the ashes of criticism. Paul says there's many good things that God does out of the ashes of criticism, and we grow by it. Let's move on quickly to our crisis. The crisis is this. Look, he says, yes, I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
See, Paul is petitioning them to pray, and he's praying for deliverance. Now, the word deliverance is used in many different ways. One is used of a person coming out of darkness at their salvation. Paul's not talking about that. The other two ways is, one, there could be a deliverance through death. Through the life circumstances and wherever we are, we, he actually sees death as a good thing. It's a way for God to deliver. Or it could be through being released from your circumstances. So I think what Paul was saying is whether I am let out of jail or whether I go home to be with the Lord, those are my difficult, that's my crisis that's a hand before me. And, tomorrow, and next week, he's going to go through this monologue about how he liked to die, but then he needs to live. And he's going to go back and forth about that. But notice what he says here. In the midst of this crisis of people wanting to kill him, wanting to silence him, or the possibility of him living, he says, this is what's important. What's important is verse 20, that I will not be at all ashamed and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. My friends, the word honor means to magnify. Magnify. To make large. And what God wants is for us to make Jesus large through our life. So it brings us to a very practical intersection in our message. And that is summarizing this question. Church, is Jesus being magnified in your life? I read this illustration by Warren Wiersbe. I thought it was so appropriate. He says, the telescope brings distant things closer. And the microscope makes tiny things look big. To the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. Other people and other things are far more important. But as the unbeliever watches the Christian go through crisis experiences, he ought to be able to see how big Jesus Christ really is. Get this. The believer's life is actually a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a distant Christ come very close. That's us magnifying Christ. My hope is that our desire and mindset is that we want Christ to be magnified and that we would allow him to advance the gospel through our chains, through the critics, through our crisis. Today I want to challenge in the closing, I want to challenge you on July 23rd we're going to have a baptism. And as that baptistry is set up here, it's a way for you to magnify Christ and for you to boldly say, if you've not been baptized, that I live for Christ. By going in the water, I'm, dying, I'm showing that's death to myself and I'm raised to newness of life. And here's what I know. I know that people love to come and watch baptisms, even people that are far from God, to watch a christening, to watch uh, this special moment in your life. And it's meant to be a testimony. And if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to consider that. Go online, sign up right away. 
I know I was baptized as an infant, and for a while in my salvation, I didn't think I needed to be baptized. And then I studied the scriptures, and I realized it's a believer's baptism, and I didn't remember a thing when I was a child. So if you've been baptized as a child and not as an adult, and you're a born-again believer, you have not been baptized. You haven't. So consider how you can magnify Christ through baptism. If you've been baptized... I would like you to consider one way in which you can start to magnify Christ by making him a greater priority towards the lost. Maybe you would start praying for people. Get a prayer card of love your neighbor and pray for people that don't know Christ. Use the Mission View events this summer to invite somebody to church. Sign out the the ministry trailer for your birthday party, for a block party, for any kind of party. It doesn't matter to me. But use it as a tool to help you build relationships. And as you build relationships throughout the summer, invite them to church to hear about Christ. As we sing this closing song, How Can It Be? I ask that you would please reflect on what God has done for us and allow that to be our motivation for the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have given us the lesson of what we are to do in the advancement of the gospel. And no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what critics come along, no matter what crisis we face, there's no mistakes with you. You use these things for your glory. I pray, Father, that you would swell up within our hearts a deeper love for you.